Good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Max Anderson. And this episode, we're talking about Thomas Ligotti's weird tale, The Last Feast of Harlequin. But first, the news. Next month, I hope, we should start seeing the release of the first recordings of The Two-Headed Serpent, the pop campaign that I've been running for the How We Roll crew. We'll post links on the website, you know, as and when they come out. But we've recorded you know, a fair number of sessions already, and it has been rather fun. Things have gone in unusual directions already. So are you still on the first chapter, or are you past that already? At the time of recording, we're just about to wrap up the first chapter, and, yeah, see where things take us from there. And over on our new website, you can find a sign-up form that will allow you to get some email newsletter notifications of when like, new shows are released and any other random stuff that I suppose we deem to put in there. Yes, we, we won't sign everyone up automatically for this. Uh, we, we already sent out notifications like this to our Patreon backers, but this is more a chance for absolutely everyone to get email alerts if email alerts are your kind of thing. And a heads up here, in a few months' time, we're going to be going to Continuum in Leicester, UK. On the 20th to the 23rd of July, they are hosting Continuum, the gaming convention, There'll be lots of games of Call of Cthulhu and many other games going on, and there's the possibility that the three of us may even be doing some kind of live show. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word of the week is... Sardonic makes me think of sardines. This is not a good word. Good. Well, there's, there's actually a reason for that, but we'll get to that in a moment. Oh, okay. Well, it's an adjective. Characterised by scornful derision or bitter irony, mocking, cynical. You know, these words all just stack up and just describe my life. This is... <laughs> uh, why did it have to be fish? Well, the origins of the word are murky but uh, some etymologists place it as, as coming from the sardinian plant uh, which obviously comes from sardinia uh, which also gives its name to sardines the sardinia plant is a poisonous plant and apparently if you ingest it and die from it your features contort into a sort of mocking sardonic grin much the same look matt has when he eats a sardine <laughs> yeah funny enough there's a reason why i don't eat fish <laughs> A wise friend once told me never eat anything more slippery than yourself, and I've, ad I've adhered to that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Most not touching that line. <laughs> intriguing advice. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> there is also the Latin term Rhesus sardonicus, the apparent smile caused by tetanus or strychnine. I think this is something that they played into quite a lot in, in various Batman stories involving the Joker as well, because uh, the Joker always seemed to use poisons that made people grin in this horribly sardonic way after they died. Why so serious? I don't know about you, but I keep encountering people who greatly mix up the word sardonic and sarcastic. And the two of them are obviously related. I mean, they the sense of irony and the fact they're both sort of nasty forms of humour. But I think sardonic is something altogether crueler and more mocking. The way that I remember it is some panel show on BBC Radio back in the 1970s, I think. I thought you were going to say the 19th century there, Scott. Not far off. It feels like that long ago. And I can't remember. Someone like Frank Muir or Dennis Norden. I think it was my word, the, you know, the, the radio show. It's just a mine of useless information. <laughs> <laughs> and whoever it was just explained the difference nicely. They said sarcastic is if you see an ugly baby and you look at it and say that's a beautiful baby that's sarcastic if you say that baby looks like it was frightened by boris karloff that's sardonic <laughs> well sardonic gets a rating of 21 on the lovecraftometer in his main fiction and once more as sardonically 
And I'd say it's fair to say that Lovecraft used the word more in terms of the cruel, mocking aspect of it than the more humorous aspect. Well, let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word sardonic in his writings. From Hypnos. The cosmos of our waking knowledge, born from such an universe as a bubble is born from the pipe of a jester, touches it only as such a bubble may touch its sardonic source when sucked back by the jester's whim. And from Pickman's model. The man was not a fantasist or romanticist at all. He did not even try to give us the churning, prismatic ephemera of dreams, but coldly and sardonically reflected some stable, mechanistic and well-established horror world which he saw fully, brilliantly, squarely and unfalteringly. And finally, from the shadow over Innsmouth. She lived in a phosphorescent palace of many terraces, with gardens of strange leprous corals and grotesque brachiate efflorescences, and welcomed me with a warmth that may have been sardonic. And now on to our main topic, The Last Feast of Harlequin, starting with a look at the author Thomas Ligotti. I think it's fair to say that Thomas Ligotti is one of the most influential living weird fiction writers. In fact, thinking about it, he is the first living writer we've talked about on the podcast. And he's been working in the field for a while. His first published story was all the way back in 1981 in Nick magazine, where he published The Chemist or The Chemist or however the hell you pronounce it. His first story collection was Songs of a Dead Dreamer, which is uh, clearly a Lovecraftian term, right? But never any fiction longer than a novella. I think yeah. it actually more rang true with Dunsany, um, thinking of a dreamer's tales. Oh, okay. I was thinking of Cthulhu, you know, lies in his tomb. Mm-hmm. Dead, dead, but, but dreaming. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, that link to Lovecraft may not be accidental there because the stories in this and his next collection, Grimscribe in particular, are quite Lovecraft in a lot of ways. Um, Certainly in style, both Ligotti and Lovecraft have got this very formal, archaic, wordy style. More than that, some of the stories in these collections in particular do draw upon Lovecraft. It seems that the title of one of his collections somewhat defines his outlook on the world it is titled the conspiracy against the human race and ligotti in his writing does come across very nihilistic and he apparently has what are termed antinatalist views which means that not only does he think that the world is meaningless and there's no point in living for yourself he believes that it would be better if there were no mankind and mankind ceased to exist altogether or had never even existed. Is that right? Yeah, that, that it's happier not to have been born in the first place. Mm-hmm. This isn't necessarily the same as being suicidal. His philosophy espoused in The Conspiracy Against the Human Race is that the happiest state of being is never to have existed at all, which is something that actually crops up in the story we'll be discussing today. I find that a strange philosophy. It is unusual. One weird aside here, I was talking with Christopher Smith Adair on Discord the other day, and he mentioned in passing that a friend of his is acquainted with Ligotti and says that actually, you know, in life, he's apparently quite a warm, funny, charming man. I just expected him to be a really dour downbeat individual based on not just his fiction, because that's never a good way of judging what a writer is like, but the philosophy that he espouses. Hmm. Yeah, I think there is this weird thing of people not looking like one would expect them to be, given through their art. You know, some of the, the craziest surrealist artists dressed like perfectly normal businessmen. I mean, look at Gilbert and George. Yes. Um, the two artists who do what has been viewed as really outrageous artwork, but you know, they dress like in a very conformist manner. Uh, the one that really blew my mind, back in the late 80s or early 90s, I met J.G. Ballard uh, at a book signing. And he was one of the most urbane people I have ever met. I mean, he was just this perfectly normal middle-aged man in a tweed jacket uh, with a rather plummy accent and absolutely perfect manners. And, and I don't know, after having read his books, I was expecting something a bit more terrifying. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, look at yourself, Scott. You write some really depressing, disturbing, unpleasant stuff, and yet you're... Well, never mind. For example, <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. That doesn't really stand up. All right, I get it. I think it's fair to say that Ligotti's heyday was the late 80s and early 90s. And this was certainly when I was introduced to his work. I remember picking up the first mass market edition of Songs of the Dead Dreamer when it came out, because I'd seen some of his work in things like Fear Magazine and, and Dagon. Yeah, the thing that, that drew me to his work initially was that he was being compared a lot at the time to the writing of a friend of mine. We were in the same writer's workshop together, Des Lewis, who, who wrote under the name D.F. Lewis, or still writes under the name D.F. Lewis. If you're a fan of Ligotti and you're not familiar with Lewis's work, do take a look. He's got several collections which you can find on, on Amazon, I believe, or you know, plenty of other places. He's got a very sort of similar grasp of, of the weird, but I'd say probably more intensely so than, than Ligotti. I have often heard Ligotti in the same sentence as Lovecraft, but it's interesting to note that Ligotti doesn't really use a lot of Lovecraftian terms. You know, he doesn't mm. bang on about Yogg-Sothoth and an Economicon every other sentence. But it's more in, in the feel of his works that he perhaps bears some resemblance to Lovecraft. Perhaps most strongly in stories such as The Sect of the Idiot, Nethescurial, The Shadow at the Bottom of the World and The Salal. And he did actually explicitly reference some of Lovecraft's work. He wrote a series of vignettes, which were riffs on various gothic horror pieces. And there were three of them that he wrote explicitly about Lovecraft, which make a sort of little triptych, which were the fabulous alienation of the outsider being of no fixed abode, which takes the events of Lovecraft's The Outsider and, and extrapolates and takes them to some weirdly optimistic and upbeat conclusion. Surfing on the ghoul winds. Uh, oh, no, no, it takes it far, far beyond that. I mean, has the outsider effectively being the progenitor of the rebirth of the human race at the end of the Earth's lifespan? Hmm. Then the blasphemous enlightenment of Professor Francis Wayland Thurston of Boston Providence and the human race, which builds on the events of the Call of Cthulhu. I should really read that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like two pages long. Oh, there you go. That's, that's long enough even for me. <laughs> and finally, the premature death of H.P. Lovecraft, oldest man in New England, which is, again, another, I think, one-page vignette about Lovecraft's death. Now, now this, this is very much my experience, but it seems to be mirrored amongst several others as well, that Ligotti came to larger attention after the broadcast of the first series of True Detective, because I remember Scott's rants about, that's pretty much Ligotti! And just it was spouted word for word. And apparently, that from what Scott was mentioning, there's also been plenty of accusations of plagiarism as a result. Yeah, it's Rust Cole's dialogue in particular, um, the character played by Matthew McConaughey. There's whole chunks of his dialogue which are almost direct quotes from Ligotti's uh, book of philosophy, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. And certainly the philosophy espoused by Cole in the TV series is classic Ligotti antinatalism. And Ligotti can also be found in the world of music. He's recorded a couple of short tracks with Current 93 and has also played guitar with the band. Uh, I know they're a favourite of yours, Scott. Mm. Oh, you absolutely. introduced me to uh, Current 93, among other things. Back in the days when we were playing Cult, you had it as background music. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I played a lot of kind of industrial and, and apocalyptic folk and weird stuff as background music then. Current 93, I'd almost like to do an episode on them at some stage because particularly David Tibet, who is the core member of Current 93, is this huge unsung if you know, that's not too much of a pun figure in the world of weird fiction i went to a talk a few years back which was a celebration of the centennial of robert aikman's birth and one of the people there was ray russell the publisher of tartarus press and tartarus press were the people who basically kept aikman's legacy alive after his death and made sure that his work got back into print and and repopularized him and the reason that they did this was because apparently David Tibet had turned up at Ray Russell's place with a whole stack of Aikman books and sort of said, you've got to read these and you've got to get these back into print. He did a very similar thing with introducing Ray Russell to Arthur Mackin. He's almost like this hidden figure at the back of weird fiction. And we can also point listeners towards the Thomas Ligotti Online website, which has large numbers of articles and a lively discussion forum, and also recommend the Thomas Ligotti Reader, edited by Daryl Schweitzer. 
The Last Feast of Harlequin was first published in the April 1990 issue of the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, although it was subsequently collected in Grinscribe, His Lives and Works, in 1991, Ligotti's second collection. It can also be found in many anthologies. I know it appears in A Mountain Walked, Return to Lovecraft Country. There's also a Penguin edition, the one I have, which collects Songs of a Dead Dreamer and Grimscribe together, so you get two for the price of one there. Or, yeah, I mean, if you can find it, The Nightmare Factory, which is a collection that was published in the 1990s, collecting Ligotti's first four collections into one book. And according to Douglas A. Anderson's introduction to The Shadow at the Bottom of the World, Ligotti described this story as being the first he wrote that was good enough not to throw away. And on another online source, I saw that it was his first story that it just kept stored in a box for years and (laughs) unpublished. A bit like in the story, the reference that he throws the uh, the paper in the drawer and just leaves it there. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's it's a much stronger story than a lot of his early work. This is something we'll probably come back to afterwards. And now we take a look at The Last Feast of Harlequin. So our nameless narrator becomes interested in the town of Miracor when a colleague mentioned an annual festival involving clowns. And who doesn't love clowns? (laughs) A fool's feast. The narrator, we find, is an anthropologist, lecturer, and sometime clown. He's unable to find any more information about the festival. Some months later, however, he finds himself passing the town and decides to visit. What a coincidence! And he drives through this road into Miracor, which is described as containing several confusing turns, which seems to be metaphorical as much as literal. And when he gets there, it's a weird place. It's a hilly country with the unusual architecture of the houses. He's not quite sure you know, whether some of them are floating and above others. And uh, the whole thing is very unsettling and filled with strange tricks of perspective. Looking out of his car window and wanting directions, he sees a shambling figure of a man wandering along and calls out to him for help, but the man pretty much ignores him. But our narrator feels that he knows him, he recognises him. He's never been to Miracle before, but this guy, he knows. And I thought this was a, a really intriguing idea, that you go somewhere and there's someone there that you know you know, and how irritating that is i had that the other night when i watched the post at the cinema and there's a character in it whose voice i totally recognized but i could not place and it didn't take me out of the film but it took me quite a long time to realize it's josh lyman from the west wing (laughs) visiting the miracle city hall and community center the narrator asks the clerk about the festival and is handed a flyer it's almost like an investigator getting a handout Please come to the fun, it said in large letters. Parades, it went on. Street masquerade. Bands. The Winter Raffle. And the Coronation of the Winter Queen. The flyer makes no mention of dates, so the clerk writes them in by hand. The festival takes place between the 19th to the 21st of December. This timing strikes the narrator as odd because it's so close to Christmas. What's the point of holding a festival like this just next to another huge celebration? And the clerk does confirm that the festival involves clowns, but says, of a sort. Obviously, this is taking place at the winter solstice, which has been celebrated long before we had a Christmas, and is the longest night in the Northern Hemisphere. The clerk gives the narrator a more direct route out of town. This takes him through a run-down slum filled with shuffling and forlorn people. Soon after, the colleague who mentioned the feast finds the article that caught his eye. The Last Feast of Harlequin. Preliminary notes on a local festival. The author is Raymond Thoss, a former professor of the narrator. Thoss apparently had a reputation as disappointingly subjective and impressionistic, which are probably not good traits in an academic. The article contains references to the Conqueror Worm by Poe, which Thos actually uses as an epitaph to the article, as well as making mentions of Syrian Gnosticism and especially the Roman festival of Saturnalia. So again, we come to a pre-Christian celebration, Saturnalia, the Roman celebration that took place around the, the winter solstice. 
Yeah, and Saturnalia was a weird, weird festival. There are certain elements of it which found their way into Christmas, like the giving of gifts. But also, I mean, there's all sorts of games of identity. So there was this idea that masters and servants, or slaves and masters, would change places. There was a lot of disguise and cross-dressing. Uh, men would dress as women and women would dress as men. And Oh, no, yeah. they didn't. <laughs> oh, yes, well, they did. Yeah, I mean, we'll come into how this ties in with, with pantomimes, but this, again, is actually fairly key to the story. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it, none of these things are coincidences. The narrator belatedly realises that the man he asked questions um, of in Miracle was, in fact, da, 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 Dr. Thos, who disappeared from academic life some 20 years previously. As an aside, Dr. Thos actually turns up as a name in another one of Ligotti's stories. In particular, he is the title character, if not actually the protagonist of a story called The Troubles of Dr. Thos. Though the name seems to be the same, the character isn't. The Dr. Thos in The Troubles of Dr. Thos is a medical doctor and may not exist and may not actually be human and may sort of be something that's like a bowling ball made of flesh or may just exist in the, the protagonist's dreams or... Uh, anyway. I still think it was just a career change before he went on to this. Yes, yes, clearly. Yeah. In the months leading up to the festival, the narrator purchases new costumes and grease paint, brushing up his juggling skills and clowning. But his heart isn't really in it, however, as he suffers from seasonal affective disorder, which I'm guessing is going to be pretty much at its height, given it's the darkest night of the year. Mm. An article in the Miracle Courier reveals that there are regular suicides in the town at this time of year, including that of Mrs. Beadle, wife of the hotel owner many years ago. The fact that we've got a protagonist who is suffering from depression, the fact that we've got this theme of seasonal affective disorder running through the town, this long light of darkness, these suicides, I think that this is very much a story about depression. Depression seems to be at the core of it, and it seems to be at the core of a lot of Ligotti's work. He has talked quite openly about depression, and particularly anhedonia, which he suffers from, which is the inability to derive pleasure from the things that you know normally give you pleasure. It's that aspect of depression where the superficialities of the world stop really meaning anything to you and you just find yourself looking at the dark emptiness that's underneath it all. That is this story. The day before the festival, the narrator drives to Miracor. The town is decorated with green lights, streamers, wreaths and boughs of evergreens. The narrator connects this to the traditions of Yule. I guess it looks kind of Christmassy, right? All the oh, yeah. bright lights. And... I was thinking downright creepy with it just being green yes, and no ev- other colour. Everything is green. Checking into his hotel, the narrator mistakes the clerk for the late Mrs. Beadle before realising that she is in fact her daughter, Sarah. The narrator asks Sarah's father about the festival, and particularly the clowns, as the father takes him up to the, his room. Beadle replies, Only clowns here are the ones that are, well, picked out. Which is pretty fucking creepy. I didn't really pick that up as being creepy when I read it. I thought it was just more being an evasive dick, really. Oh, I don't know. I thought it was pretty creepy. Yeah. Yeah. The fact they're picked out seems a bit weird. Yeah, it it makes it sound like being a clown in this festival isn't a voluntary thing. This is something that is thrust upon you. The following day, the narrator spots Thos on the street. Our narrator follows Thos into the slum, where he enters a grubby little cafe. Two boys in the cafe look furtive, fleeing guiltily as the narrator enters. The other occupants of the cafe are strange and sullen, resembling tramps shuffling lethargically. They slid toward me in a wormy mass. Their eyes seemed empty and unfocused, and I wondered a moment if they were even aware of my presence. This is a really unpleasant scene where all these people are coming at him in the cafe. Our narrator just panics and runs outside. I mean, who wouldn't, right? But interestingly, having read that section back, I would definitely have picked up that wormy mass. Mm. Mm. That is a very subtle piece of foreshadowing there, describing it that way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the description of almost everything that's wrong in this story is absolutely ripe with foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. By evening, the festival is in full swing. The narrator spots a clown leaving a bar. Some locals start pushing the clown around. Soon after, though, the narrator sees townsfolk abusing another clown, shoving him into a snowdrift and throwing wine in his face. 
The narrator obviously pieces together this is all part of the celebration, and he follows these townsfolk who were just abusing the second clown into a bar and has some drinks with them and asks them specifically about the festival and about the clowns and the meaning of it all. Them? They're the freaks. It's their turn this year. Everyone takes their turn. Next year it might be mine. Or yours, he said, pointing at one of his friends across the table. And when we find out which one you are... Back out on the street, the narrator encounters another clown, but of a more sinister appearance. Still think he looks like Tim Curry. Much like the subject of Monk's The Scream, his clothing and bearing resembled the tramps from the cafe. It had an inhuman likeness more proper to something under the earth than upon it. That's almost the line from Macbeth, um, describing the witches. I'm sure it's Banquo who says that they're more of the air than the earth. The narrator pushes this clown over, but the locals seem discomfited by this. I mean, he's just doing what he's seen other people do, but mm. he doesn't get the same reaction. He realises then that there are two different types of clown in Miracor, representing some other festival within the festival, possibly with the public celebrations providing cover for something deeper and stranger. You're messing with the wrong clown here. <laughs> Drunk, the narrator returns to his hotel and writes some notes trying to make sense of what is going on, speculating about connections between the real festival, the slums, and the holiday suicides. This would be a perfect handout for an investigator, what follows there. <laughs> it's just reams and reams of train of thought. Yes. And, well, that's not the only thing he writes that night, though, because the following morning he wakes up with a hangover. The festival's still going on outside, and there's a float with the Winter Queen on her throne passing the window. But more importantly, there's a strange message scrawled on his hotel room mirror in grease paint, apparently in his own handwriting, which says, What buries itself before it is dead? You know, I pondered over that thing for a hell of a long while, and I couldn't work it out. But I thought when I thought it, I thought it was more that because it doesn't hint directly that it's his own handwriting. It's just that he uses one of his own pens. Oh, I, I oh, could no, be misremembering. I could be misremembering that. But I thought he said it was in you know not just in his grease paint, but in his own hand. I didn't pick up it was in his own hand. Yeah, oh, that's okay. why. That's why I said it was ah. his own pen. It was his own pen from his own. Um, that, that could set. be. That because, could be me misremembering uh, then. Yeah, because he he makes a comment of oh how he suddenly feels really insecure in the hotel room yeah. if anyone can just come and go. Yes, you, 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 quite, you quite probably are right there. The narrator spends the next day making himself up as one of the scream-like clowns, heading outside at nightfall. The townsfolk and the other clowns ignore the narrator as if he were invisible. It's a little detail, but I really like the fact that when he first mentions the scream, he can't remember the artist or the yes. name. Hmm. And it just feels like it gives him more of a personality. He feels more real as a result, that it's not some artificial narrator that suddenly knows everything. Yeah. That suddenly, oh, I can reference this straight off the bat. Just, no, I can't quite place my finger on it. He says, scratching his head. That, that allows that us to thing. associate more easily with him. Yeah. But, with him. but it's not just that. I mean, it's it's like he's not recognising Thos in the first place and that coming back to him. Mm. It's this sort of piecing together of details that sort of add up to a horrible whole. And I guess one of the Lovecraftian aspects of this story, he may not necessarily be setting out to solve this particular mystery, but he is picking up all these disparate bits of information, his brain is processing them, assembling them into something that is, in the end, really quite horrible. Correlating, Lovecraft might say. Yes. <laughs> Leaving his little island of ignorance. <laughs> he spots a truck picking up the other clowns, and the narrator makes his way and contrives to also be picked up by this truck and he squeezes into the back amongst the mass of other clown bodies. The no, no, nothing, nothing good ever involves the phrase clown bodies, does it? <laughs> <laughs> the occupants treat him with indifference. The truck drives out of town, stopping in thick woodland. As the others climb out, the narrator sees approximately 30 more of these cadaverous clowns milling about. And by lantern light, the narrator sees all these clowns clustering around a hole in the ground. One by one, the clowns jump in and, reluctantly tagging along at the back, the narrator eventually follows and finds that the hole leads into a tunnel heading down. I just like the idea of them jumping down straight into darkness and just falling forever. <laughs> it almost seemed a bit of a joke uh, when the first clown then pops his head back out and think, oh, OK, that wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> 
They were relatively smooth, as if the passage had not been made by manual digging, but had been burrowed by something which had left behind a clue to its dimensions in the tunnel's size and shape. This delirious idea came to me when I recalled the message that had been left on my hotel room mirror. What buries itself before it is dead? It's almost like a worm tunnel. The tunnel leads to a cavernous chamber far below the ground with walls that seem to have been gnawed. There to meet us on the floor of the great cavern was what must have been the entire slum population of Miracle and more, all with the same eerily wide-eyed and oval-mouthed faces. The group surround an altar where something lumpy lies below a dark leathery covering. Presiding over the ceremony is our old friend Thos. Rather I should name him by his other incarnations. God of all wisdom, scribe of all sacred books, father of all magicians, thrice great and more. Rather I should call him Thoth. And I did wonder whether the name Thos was then a deliberate play on the part of Ligotti. Some sort of mash-up then of Thoth and Thanatos. Mm -hmm. Thos leads the celebrants in the most horrendous high-pitched singing that can be imagined. Well, not if you've heard our shows. <laughs> Although we don't really go into high pitch so we much. We beat but... them hands down here. <laughs> so, so, I mean, if you hang around in this episode, we might try something like that. Oh, God. Oh, dear. <laughs> they were singing to the unborn in paradise, to the pure unlived lives. They sang a dirge for existence for all its vital forms and seasons. Their ideal was a melancholy half-existence consecrated to all the many shapes of death and dissolution. And this does seem to tie in very much with Lagotti's antinatalist philosophy, the idea of the unborn in paradise, the pure unlived lives, this idea that, yes, the happiest state of being is never being at all. But being in paradise. But paradise, in this case, is not existing. OK, I'm not quite getting it then. Are we saying that... They have some existence in a paradise, but they haven't had to suffer the being actual physical humans as we are. Quite you know, possibly. Because I'm taking antinatalism mm -hmm. means just no existence whatsoever. But if it means actually not having to exist as a human, but having an existence in some kind of heavenly realm, then that seems... I mean, it's... I think with this, it's like a sort of mystical or fantastical take on the idea of antinatalism. It's not a pure expression of the philosophy, but it's sort of, hmm, let's play around with the idea a bit. When the singing stops, Thos welcomes the new generation, stating that 20 winters had passed since the pure ones had expanded their ranks. He draws back the covering, revealing a limp-limbed effigy, a collapsed puppet sprawled upon the slab. Now... There's a piece of unreliable narration, if I ever saw one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but on the other hand, with everything we've seen so far, did you at that stage think, oh yeah, yeah, it's just a puppet. It yes! Can't, it can't <laughs> possibly be you know, a limp body there. No, seriously, I thought it was a puppet. I took it. I took him literally and thought, that why is there a fucking puppet on an altar? Poetry, Matt. Fucking poetry. <laughs> <sighs> Maybe I was too busy thinking of the Conqueror Worm, which he brings up again, thinking, lo, tis a gala night. Hmm... As Thos chants, the congregants begin to change, one at a time. The transformation scene of Harlequin throwing off his fool's facade. Oh God, Harlequin, do not move like that. Harlequin, where are your arms? And your legs have melted together and begun squirming upon the floor. What horrible mouthing umbilicus is where your face should be. What is it that buries itself before it is dead? The almighty serpent of wisdom, the conqueror worm. So it seems that this scene plays with the imagery of the Harlequinade. Now, what is the Harlequinade? No, it's not uh, clown lemonade. It's an old British variant of the Commedia dell'arte and a precursor of the modern pantomimes. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm just thinking what a, a sort of soft drink made from clowns would be like, and it, that, that it would be it's sort of this very, very brightly coloured drink that was perhaps made of the most poisonous alcohol, stale sweat and the tears of children. And thus the Bloody Mary was born. <laughs> well, I expect you to come up with that recipe for our next party, Matt, when you're serving cocktails. <laughs> the Harlequinade. 
Oh, boy. <laughs> I do have another cocktail I have to uh, put together, but uh, oh, no, I don't think it's going to be red. It'll be very blue, but not very red. <laughs> but the idea of Harlequinade, this was a, a form of theatre that existed in the UK from, I think, about the 17th century through to early Victorian times. And, you know, as, as we mentioned, it was the precursor of the pantomime. But the idea was that it would be an otherwise fairly serious performance, possibly involving songs and opera. But at some point in the proceedings, the character of maybe a fairy would come along and instigate a transformation of the players and the players would change on stage they'd don new costumes and masks or maybe makeup and they would move from being the serious characters they played to the comedic characters of the commedia dell'arte so characters like harlequin and pantaloon and uh, columbine and and the clown and piero i hear pantaloon and the only thing i can think of is trousers yeah, that, that's where it comes from. There you go. There's also the very literal meaning of carnival, as in carnival, meaning to remove meat. The start of Lent, when people would give up eating meat for 40 days and nights before Easter. But this is, yeah, an altogether more sinister and eldritch form of saying farewell to the flesh. And it takes about 20 years rather than 40 days and 40 nights. Or alternatively, it just takes a moment in this case. <laughs> The figure on the altar moves and screams as the newly transformed worms writhe towards it. Our narrator realises this is Sarah Beadle, the Winter Queen, sharing the fate her mother underwent 20 years before. And this does seem to be almost like an echo of the Wicker Man, in that you've got this character who's come along, infiltrated this, this strange celebration, this celebration of sacrifice, and has turned up disguised as a fool, and has come along and found the crowned queen of the celebration being the centre of the sacrifice, and finding that his role in the whole process is much deeper and more personal than he believed. You can almost see this as a retelling of the Wicker Man. Except this Rowan Morrison didn't get off quite so lightly. No. The narrator flees, fearing he is about to change as well. The untransformed celebrants try to pursue him, but Thos orders them to stop. The narrator runs to the road and flags down a car. But the key thing here is that we don't hear for definite what Thos's command is. We're only mm. told the kind of the overall shape of the content, not the exact, the exact words yet. And the following morning, the narrator decides to leave Miracle for, I, I guess pretty obvious reasons. There is no trace, however, of Beadle. When he speaks to another clerk at the hotel, he learns that Beadle has gone off in search of his daughter, so... Watch out, he's about. <laughs> well, it seems pretty strange to me that he waits until the following morning <laughs> before he comes back. Oh, that's a pretty horrible experience. I'll just get a few hours sleep and then I'll drive out of town. In, in, the, room I, in the room that I know people have already got into already. Yeah. <laughs> so, driving out of town, the narrator spots Thos. There he is in his like, rearview mirror, almost. Uh, there's Thos and one of his followers in the middle of the road. The narrator recognises the follower as one of the boys who had fled the cafe a few days before. They only watch as the narrator drives away. The narrator finds himself unable to engage with normal life again, claiming illness and avoiding teaching. At certain times, I could almost dissolve entirely into this inner realm of purity and emptiness, the paradise of the unborn. I remember how I was momentarily overtaken by a feeling I had never known when in disguise I drifted through the streets of Miracle, untouched by the drunken, noisy forms around me, untouchable. It was the feeling that I had been liberated from the weight of life. But I recoil at the seductive nostalgia, for it mocks my existence as mere foolery, a bright clown's mask behind which I have sought to hide my darkness. As the narrator tries to come to terms with this, he recalls what Thos called to his pursuers in the tunnel. He is one of us, it said. He has always been one of us. We finish with the narrator promising... Soon I will celebrate alone, and that last feast which will kill your words, only to prove how well I have learned their truth. There's an ambiguous note, if ever there was one. Yeah. 
Yeah, it really is. The story ends with a dedication to H.P. Lovecraft. The story itself does draw very heavily on Lovecraft, even if it doesn't explicitly name-check elements of his work. It really does read like a combination of The Festival and The Shadow of Rinsmith. But in the end of The Shadow of Rinsmith, you know, spoiler alert, Robert Olmsted does accept his fate. Here, there seems to be something a little different, something more ambiguous. There's also the connection with the festival also being set around the winter solstice, so there's, there's echoes there as well as content and theme. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the festival has so many elements that are related to this. For example, in The Last Feast of Harlequin, there's a throwaway reference to how a lot of people believe that the elements of the festival that's celebrated in Miracor came from the Middle East, but uh, Thos and his researchers actually believe that they originated in New England. And though Kingsport is never explicitly mentioned, it certainly seems to be related to the festival in the festival. I mean, they take place, as you mentioned, in the winter solstice, and they both involve entities that are sort of somewhere between worm and human, though of a different form. There is one brief reference in the story to Miracle being in the Midwest, yes. in the States. Yes, yeah, but the idea that the festival was started by people who had travelled from New England mm. and started this new festival. So this isn't the Kingsport Festival, this seems to be some echo of it. Now let's take a look at what we can take for gaming from the last Feast of Harlequin. Now there's the big one. It's overused for sure. Creepy clowns! Who <laughs> doesn't want to use creepy clowns in these scenarios? It's overused, actually. But I've had one scenario of clowns in. Not that I wrote, but one that Kiri Birch wrote called yeah. Coolerophobia. Uh, you know, the fear, fear of, of clowns. clowns. And they are a, a very much a cliche that we see in lots of online memes and, and so on. But actually, in Call of Cthulhu scenarios, I don't think they turn up that much. I'm just thinking wider media. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Largely from Stephen King's ear, right? Yeah, and oh, I mean, there was that whole rash a few years ago as well of people dressing up as creepy clowns and wandering around. It started, I think, not very far from here, up in Northampton. Mm. But there was one particular person who was just dressing as a creepy clown and hanging around the edge of woods and wandering around the streets at night and, and scaring people. Yeah. Which, I thought that was just normal for Northampton. <laughs> well, it strikes me as being a pretty risky thing to do, because at some stage you're going to do that to the wrong person, they're going to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah. As The Last Feast of Harlequin shows us, you don't want to push the wrong clowns around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you find a creepy clown on the street, check to see whether anyone else has pushed it over before you attack. <laughs> Can you think of any ways that we could actually use creepy clowns in Call of Cthulhu and, and not just be a, a rehash of the way that everyone else has used them? Well, I would uh, reference the Honourable Gentleman to what I said before about Kiri Birch's yes. scenario. That, that certainly uses it differently, but I don't want to really go into that. Yeah, and that had elements of Killer Clans from Outer Space, if I remember correctly. Ah, I've not uh, actually seen that, but yeah. yes. The way I could use it, potentially, is if that you had um, this travelling circus, or maybe even not travelling, but people that joined the circus to be clowns to put on this mask that hid either some deformity or some mark that they'd had as a result of a mythos encounter that it was maybe the only place they could go where they could live some kind of life without being thrown in an asylum. Mm. So you actually yeah. have the clowns as victims. Yes, yeah, yeah, Hide, hiding their true horror behind the grease paint. Mm. Yeah, and the, the one that had occurred to me, which I, I may actually use in a scenario I'm working on, was the idea of a mythos cult that had sort of embraced some of the, the aspects of clowning because they were drawn to the idea of this mask over the true horror of reality and, and more what happens when you, when you pull it aside. It's sort of almost drawing people into the fun, the playfulness, the mystique of the clown, and then what happens when you, you know, remove the mask. The clown wears no mask. Exactly. <laughs> I think one of the things that occurs to me here is what happens to the main character in the story. It's not quite the case, but he's, it's almost like he's abducted and then he finds himself back in his bedroom. It's a bit like the prisoner, you know, he wakes up and I'm expecting like time to have passed and him to be confused as to where he is. It's not quite like that in the story, but that's, that's kind of what it brought to mind. And I think having scenes in Call of Cthulhu where a player character, particularly if they're driven temporarily insane or indefinitely insane, they, they flee from the rest of the group. And then you've got that, that kind of element of missing time where they, they wake up in their own room or, or, or wherever 
and there's this strange message written on the mirror, either in their own hand or in somebody else's hand. I think that's going to hook players in because there's a mystery there that involves my character that I'm going to want to know about. Well, I think you could even go one stage further than that. Those notes that the protagonist writes to himself when he's drunk the night before, where he's sort of piecing all these things together. After your bout of madness the night before, you do find all these strange things that seem to have been written in your handwriting, loads and loads of pages, some of which seem to piece together disparate elements of the scenario. Some things give them revelations that act as clues. Some things are active disinformation, and some things are just complete what the fuck. Maybe rather than written notes, let's let's get a bit memento. To, you know, they're tattooed on yourself. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> or, or you know, carved in with an exacto knife. Yeah, <laughs> or just even with grease paint. Oh was, yeah, could be yeah. <laughs> and also the end of the story. When he says, you know, you've always been here, that very much reminded me of The Shining, you know, the film of The Shining, (laughs) when we find that Jack was always the caretaker. It's a a revelation that one can perhaps weave into a scenario, whether it be actually real or whether it be a delusion that's kind of imposed upon the the player character through madness. It's also a much more weird and satisfying ending than the book. One thing I really liked in this story, which... I think it's quite a difficult thing to pull off in a, a scenario, but you know it would be very rewarding if you could. Was the the sense of of wrongness in Miracor, but without necessarily any sense of direct threat. If we compare this to the Shadow of Rinsmith, for example. When Olmsted arrives in the shadow of Rinsmith, then there is the sense of the place being wrong, the people look weird, but the whole place is just oppressively wrong, the Gilman Hotel is wrong, and almost immediately he's under siege. In this, however, it's the little hints throughout, it's the fact that this is a community with a dark secret at its core, but the dark secret isn't placing him in immediate danger, it's this this sense of skin-crawling wrongness. I think it's his difficulty in interacting with the people as well, in how Mm. strange they are and how when he goes into that cafe and there's just this throng of, like a mob of strange people that don't really behave like people. It's like a mindless mob that rush towards him. And then the whole thing with him seeing people being almost physically violent to a clown and, and pushing them over like a school bully. But then when he does it, he gets a totally different reaction this inability to fit in with the people it's always playing around with perception that you have him suddenly think oh yeah pushing people over is the norm so if i do it to this one it's obviously the norm as well and playing with characters in a similar kind of way that oh yeah you can go over and prod the deep one it's all right yeah it's like when you make a joke and you suddenly realize that you've said something highly inappropriate uh, which I'm, you know, I can't be the only person that's done that, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yes, you and, are, Paul. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, and it's that, you know, stony silence that everybody looks at you. Yeah. <laughs> that's most, most of the days at work for me. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think of this as a Call of Cthulhu scenario, the Keeper has almost actively misled him at this stage. There is this revelation that there is the festival within the festival, but, I mean, the Keeper could have fed him the clues and sort of given him the, the weird, scream-looking clowns, first of all, and had him interact with those. But instead, you sort of see the fake festival that's laid over the top of it, that he deals with the, the other clowns. He falls into the trap of believing the surface, this sort of leads him to an even more uncomfortable situation. It's almost as if Scott's the GM. <laughs> That's a good definition of the whole onion layer mm. thing, which is expounded in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook, originally by Sandy, that we expose one layer of weirdness and, and we peel that away and we find another layer of weirdness underneath. So this carnival, which is kind of odd and the people are a bit weird, but we can kind of accept that. And you might take it, well, that is the weirdness. But no, actually, when you peel that away, there's deeper level underneath. It gives the scenario, if it were a scenario, more dimensionality. It's not just a plain, that is what it is. There's, there's more underneath. Suddenly, at the middle of your onion, you find a worm. <laughs> <laughs> and hope to God you haven't eaten the other layers of the onion up until that point. Uh, but it is the fact as well that even the more sinister people that the narrator encounters aren't direct physical threats. 
You talk about, for example, that scene in the cafe. And it would be, I think, all too easy to have a scene like that in a Call of Cthulhu game where it's sort of the people in the, the cafe are clearly monsters, you now have to fight your way out, big action scene and so on. And if you had something like that in this story, it would have completely undermined and destroyed it. Instead, you, you just had this feeling after that scene of, oh, God, I need to have a bath. But there isn't the, the release, the catharsis of action yeah, I think the the temptation is always to go for the easy option of action, and we'd see that if some cheap director were to make a dramatization of this, we can imagine for definite there'd be a combat scene there. You know, there'd be action, there'd be broken glasses and bottles, and I, I was kind of hoping they were going to break out into the song and dance routine in Calvert. But... It did remind me of that. <laughs> yes. yes, yeah, the yeah. film Calvert with the the wonderful <laughs> scene where the guy starts playing the piano, and then the locals stand up and start doing this bizarre dance mm-hmm. it was very evocative that, that. that's exactly the same dance as we do every time we sing to our backers yeah, yeah. you're giving away trade secrets here <laughs> what the hell one of the things i love about Lagotti in general but at the same time makes him a very difficult writer to engage with is this oppressive dense sense of, of nihilism that runs through his work i find it very difficult to read more than one or two Lagotti stories in a row. I have to take breaks between them. And, you know, certainly I, I, I've, I've written a fair few Call of Cthulhu scenarios where I've tried to make them as bleak and nihilistic as possible. I mean, Bleak Prospect, for example, in Nameless Horrors, I, is, is meant to be a completely nihilistic, horrible, downbeat scenario. But when I was writing that, I did wonder whether just because you can do this in a Call of Cthulhu scenario, should you? Should you create something that robs the players of any sense of fulfilment at the end, perhaps, or makes it impossible for them to you know, feel like their characters have triumphed in any small way that destroys them, that just oppresses their mood all the way through? Is, is this something that you know, we could or should aspire to in Call of Cthulhu, or is it a terrible idea? I thought that was your general goal with everything. It is. I mean, yeah. it, it is my ethos for life but, yeah you know, yeah I'm, I'm just now beginning to question whether it's a fair one we need to get you a mission statement to put above your front door scott something you know to that effect abandon all hope ye who enter oh there you go <laughs> <laughs> i mean you're asking should we aim for that no i don't think we should aim for that should we aim for it sometimes yeah by all means i think so I think one of the things that i enjoy about call of cthulhu scenarios is the massive variety that we see in them from the comedic to the wondrous to the quite mundane kind of almost murder mystery type things to the nihilistic bleak scenarios i think that variety is part of what keeps it interesting also part of what engages so many people because different people take that differently and also you write a really bleak scenario some people are going to change that a bit when they play it some people are going to play it really dark and bleak some people are going to pulp it up a bit some people are going to make it a bit more b-movie just to adapt it to their group it's definitely something where you've got to make sure you've got the group's buy-in so for example i did do a scenario that was completely nihilistic for dead of night i ran it first of all as a convention and I had a group of players who really bought into the nihilistic aspect of it and played it as a, a race to destruction. I ran it a little while later for a different group who I think were more geared up for a traditional horror scenario and became, I think, quite frustrated at the fact that they couldn't get a happy resolution out of it. Every time we were going for something bleak in there, just undermine the whole thing with humour and jokes. And it was one of the most unsatisfying game sessions I've had. But I think in terms of making a Lovecraftian scenario, then no, I don't think we should go for something bleak and nihilistic. Because it came to me that when we were in Necronomicon in the summer in Providence, I was on the panel with the seminars about our favourite scenarios. And so many of us picked The Paper Chase from uh, the Call of Cthulhu Companion, an old volume. And that isn't nihilistic or bleak it's really about a sense of wonder and through the conversation it really dawned on me that a lot of Lovecraft's work is about a sense of wonder at these strange things in the universe I think it's very much a balance between bleak horror and a sense of awe and wonder I mean you can go either way but I don't think Mm. it's, it's necessarily one or the other 
I think it's when you take out that sense of wonder that really that's when the nihilism takes over. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I, I reread the festival for reading this story. And Lovecraft's story definitely has that sense of wonder. You know, there's these underground caverns with these monstrous fungi. You know, he takes us into that sort of strange underground world that we see in the rats in the walls, I think. I don't really get that sense of wonder from Ligotti. No, this, this is something grubbier and nastier. Yeah, so it lacks that dimension to me. I think also this this story sort of feeds back a little bit to our recent episode on folk horror. It may not be set in a rural setting, but it involves this sense of isolation, this sense of place, this sense of corrupted rituals. I think it's a very, very good example of how you can take inspiration from real-world rituals, in this case, Yule and Saturnalia, and sort of perhaps look for the mythos elements that might underlie that or how a mythos cult or sect might use this as a facade for something you know altogether deeper one more thing that occurs to me about ligotti i haven't read that many ligotti stories but the one thing that does disquiet me when i read them is i can't ask questions of the author as to where where is this set when is this set because i'm not quite getting it are we in modern day america there are, there are implications in the story that it is, you know, it was kind of set in, in contemporary America, but it's not yeah. there on the page very strongly. Yeah, it's timeless. But when I play a scenario, I can just ask the GM, what year is it, Scott? What, what, yeah. you know, where, where is this town, Miracle Matt? You know, I can ask and, and find those out immediately. But I think as a GM, we can probably play on those mm, assumptions yeah. and. We can give a few hints that it is actually 1920s America without being specific. And maybe not, you know, maybe it isn't. And obviously, as the, the, the players can ask questions, but we can answer their questions. We don't have to fill them in totally. So we can play with expectations there, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the players are always entirely dependent on the information we don't give them as much as what we do. Mm. And it's certainly something I've played with in a few times I've GM'd, sort of withholding perhaps not key bits of information, but enough ordinary bits of information that the description becomes unsettling. Ligotti is a master of that. I mean, not just this story, but, uh, you know, I think pretty well almost any story of his you read. It's this detached academic style that he's got, this very formal style. This is one of the things that's very like Lovecraft. Very often the protagonists of the narrators are ciphers. They are perhaps slightly more active sometimes than Lovecraft's protagonists, but mm. you don't necessarily get much of a sense of who they are. The details that they observe, they observe in a very academic style that yeah kind are. of partial information exactly yeah, yeah which leaves you wanting to know more leaves you slightly in the dark about, yeah. uh, and uneasy because of that exactly thank you thank you thank you once again we would like to thank those wonderful 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 people who have given us money via patreon the money you give us pays for the show it is the fuel that keeps us running it makes all of this possible and we would like to thank each and every one of you and we would like to thank some new backers indeed we have two backers to sing to sing on it sing surely we've got some that have put in like one or three dollars no 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 just uh, just the five dollars this oh. time Matt. yeah Yes, we do still have a little backlog of people to sing to. As we mentioned before, the popularity of the Blasphemous Tome Issue 3 kind of took us by surprise, really, and we did get a lot of new backers as a result, and it has taken us some time to work through the list. So if you are still waiting for your song, please bear with us. We haven't forgotten you. It's just, I think, not safe for anyone involved if we do more than two songs per episode. And the first song today goes out to someone who goes by the online name of Anikid. Oh, well, uh, yeah, cheers, Anikid. Yes, thank you very much, Anikid. And uh, we, we hope you like this.
And this next one goes out to our next victim, Kathleen Lambert. So thank you very much, Kathleen. Yes, thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Kathleen Lambert. Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen Lambert. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, On social media, we had some very good feedback on our folk horror episode, particularly on Google+. As usual, there is quite a long thread there, so if you would be interested in finding out what other people have said about it, we recommend you go and visit that thread. We'll link to it from the show notes. But here are a few highlights. Starting off with Daily Dwarf, who says, Good to see a number of Touchstone authors referenced. Arthur Macken, M.R. James, Ted Klein... Another you didn't mention in the episode is Britain's finest, Ramsay Campbell. Apart from Ancient Images, a number of other stories from his collection, Scared Stiff, especially Dolls and Merry May, take the themes of fertility often explored in folk horror down some dark paths. And his novel, Hungry Moon, is a classic mixture of folk horror, ancient village rites, with the cosmic and eons old monstrosity, with something truly scary an evangelical preacher, thrown in for good measure. Highly recommended. Yeah, I did read The Hungry Moon, oh gosh, back when it came out, which must have been somewhere between 20 and 25 years ago, I guess. And yeah, I mean, that one has haunted me. It stayed with me. I think it's it's one of Campbell's best novels. Campbell, I think, is at his strongest as a short story writer. But some of his novels are exceptional, and, and The Hungry Moon and Ancient Images are the ones that, from the weird aspect of it, really stay with me. Daily Dwarf also mentions on the same thread, Now that I think of it, a Good Friends episode on the works of Ramsay Campbell would be fantastic. Yeah, that'd be a good one, I think. Another living yeah. author for us to tackle. Well, we can't break the habit of a lifetime too much, <laughs> come on. Evelyn M on G+, also has a few things to say about the folk horror episode. I like the idea of adding layers upon layers of dreadful descriptions of ordinary landscape culminating in a sand test. Like zooming in and adding more details that become more dreadful. Like a fractal of the macabre. Yeah, I do like that idea. Almost going back to what you were saying about the onion model earlier. The idea that... At first glance, everything is perhaps all right in this bucolic landscape, and there are perhaps little hints of decay and wrongness here and there. And the more you drill into it, the more you find out the true horrors that are beneath there. Perhaps that's a very specific aspect of folk horror. It doesn't necessarily involve the debased rites. But yeah, that perversion of landscape, I think, is is a powerful and creepy thing. And continuing the, um, the trend of looking at G+, uh, Douglas McAndrew says... Familiar legends and folk tales appeal to me in a Call of Cthulhu game because they serve as an excellent way to misdirect the investigators and provide cover for something which comes from the universe of HPL. If you think of the mythos as being the one true weird thing in the world, then where you've got folk traditions and folk magic and and these strange myths and legends, if they're not just complete invention, then surely they must mask something truly alien and horrible underneath the surface. And if you want to join in the discussion, you'll find links to all our social media presences on the website, blasphemoustomes.com. Then to wrap up our discussion of The Last Feast of Harlequin, let's try to put our fingers on exactly what makes this such an unsettling story. You know I only fell asleep two times trying to read this? (laughs) <laughs> that, that's got to be a record yeah. because, I mean this this isn't a short story I mean it's not as long as some of the stories we've discussed but it's I'd say about the same length as say something like The Call of Cthulhu to be fair even though I say I was fell asleep twice that's once after the end of the first part so the, pretty much when he arrives in Miracor and then leaves again twice being I got another ten pages in but then I think I've managed to blitz through a couple of nights ago when I read the bulk of it I've got through about 30 pages in one go which is almost unheard of for me <laughs> So, d- does this mean that you're now a Lagotti fan? I was actually talking to Tiff about this, and I was saying, well, I think I liked it. <laughs> there, there were certain elements which I thought were a little bit weird or didn't pay off as much for me, thinking of that 
literally when I thought it was just a puppet, and then he was saying, hang on a minute, where did the girl come from? Getting my head wrapped round his fairly dense prose. But, yeah, on, on the whole, I think I'd say I liked it, yeah. Yeah, I'd kind of agree with that. On the whole, like, I kind of liked it. I didn't like it as much as some of the other Ligotti I've read. In Teatro Grotesco, I think one of the first stories is about a kid whose dad does strange things with bodies in the cellar or mm. something mm. strange like that. And that was a really odd story, whereas this one takes the mould of fairly well-trodden horror narrative, very much in the sort of style of Lovecraft and so on. If you read this story, I wouldn't stick with that one. I'd go and look at other Ligotti works. I, I think Ligotti definitely got a lot better. Not just better, I think he became more of his own writer as, as his work progressed. I did read his stories as they came out. And so, you know, obviously I, I sort of fell in love with Songs of a Dead Dreamer and, and Grimm's Scribe as they came out in the first place. Going back to them now, in the light of things like Teatro Grotesco, they're not quite as strong. Teatro Grotesco, I think, is an amazing book. It's got some really weird stories in there. Um, the Red Tower, I think, is one of the strangest, strongest bits of weird fiction that I've read. It's a very difficult story to talk about because it doesn't really have a plot. It's just a description of a place, a very strange place. That, I think, is more the culmination of what Ligotti was building towards. This, the dedication to H.P. Lovecraft is... I think tells us an awful lot about where this story is coming from, and it does feel like Lovecraft Plus. Well, I'm not sure what you mean by Lovecraft Plus, because I think rereading the festival reminded me of what a strong story that is. I thought it was really good. Really? I, I sort of had the, the opposite experience, because I went back and reread the festival you know, after reading this. I didn't find it quite as weird and unsettling this time round as I did first time. I think Ligotti actually does a better job of addressing the themes than Lovecraft did. What Lovecraft does in the festival... He, he flinches, he pulls away from the ending, that he builds towards this weirdness and then he has that sort of classic thing of his protagonist sort of losing his shit a bit and then having to withdraw and then reflecting, you know, later on what happened. He's sort of piecing stuff together rather than necessarily facing the horror head on. But I don't think the themes are the... They're not the same themes, are they? So for Lovecraft, it's also this sense of wonder about the people of the town and this underground place. It's, they've kind of taken the same medium, if you like, this festival in the town and this underground places, but they've imposed their own themes upon it. And Ligotti's ones are of, as we've said, nihilism and a lack of association with people and... I think maybe that's actually why The Last Feast of Harlequin works much better for me as a story, because Ligotti does use it as a vehicle for talking about things like depression and suicide and uh, seasonal affective disorder, which personally I find to be much more personal and affecting horrors than the sense of the cosmic that, that Lovecraft is trying to evoke. This is a story for me about ripping aside the colourful mask that the world wears and seeing the wormy horrors of death and, and nothingness underneath. Whereas um, Lovecraft's one is about tearing that away and seeing more underneath. Yes. And for me, Ligotti's interpretation is more frightening. The, the idea that the universe is bigger and stranger and filled with more alien things than we can imagine is an affecting one. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's at the heart of cosmic horror. But, you know, the, the idea that makes cosmic horror frightening in theory is the fact that it makes us feel very small and insignificant. Lovecraft touches on that sometimes, but I think what makes Lagotti more effective is the fact that he makes us feel that kind of emptiness by evoking more human concerns. All right, well, that about wraps it up for this week, so it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. <laughs> Blasphemous Tomes dot com. Mm -hmm.